This Women's Agenda podcast series, The Leadership Lessons, is supported by Salesforce. The pandemic has tested all our relationships. Life in lockdown has forced us to communicate in new ways and embrace a reality that might stick around for some time. I'm Kate Mills, the host of Women's Agenda's new podcast series, The Leadership Lessons, supported by Salesforce. In this episode, I'm joined by best-selling writer Stephanie Dowrick, author of the acclaimed Intimacy and Solitude, a book which shows us that our relationships with others are strengthened through a deepened and more self-accepting relationship with ourselves. First published in 1991, the revised book was published again this year. So what reflections can be made 30 years on? I hope you enjoy this conversation with Stephanie Dowrick. Now, Stephanie, you're known as a writer, and I actually know you from some of your columns that you've done in the past in the, in the press. I'd also like, I'd like to start actually with your role as a businesswoman. You know, you were the MD of Women's Press, which you co-founded. So can you tell me a little bit about the, that part of your career? Oh, gosh. Well, that was an enormously important part of my career. I left school when I was 16, went to university, studied law in the days when almost no girls did. I mean, we were just little pariahs, really, in the department and didn't didn't finish my degree, but left my home country is New Zealand. And I left New Zealand as soon as I could afford to when I was 20, lived in Israel for a while, then lived in in Europe, when I say Europe, I mean mainly UK, then later Germany. By the time I was 22, I felt like a quite old woman because I'd done a, you know, I'd done a lot. I mean, at an age when many people were just leaving university. And it was at that time that I got into publishing in London and, um, at the age of 22. And I was so grateful to find a profession that I could actually love, but not only love, flourish in, really flourish in. And there were several advantages in my being originally from New Zealand, which was largely that I was not so inhibited by the strictures of what you could or could not do. So I was at that time outrageously ambitious. So I went into publishing, loved it, worked in several publishing houses, got promoted ridiculously quickly because I was probably a bit bit pushy, but pushed by the best things, wanting to do work that had value. And so when it came to the point where through a whole series of marvelous, you know, coincidences or in inverted commas, opportunities to found the women's press, which along with Virago was the, became the major feminist publishing houses in the English language. And actually at the women's press, we were very radical. We were very groundbreaking. We were very innovative and and courageous, but it also meant really challenging the status quo in a fairly constant and even assertive way that we had the right to do that. And so that required a particular kind of leadership, which was both bold and stubborn and visionary, but was also costly at a personal level. I mean, sometimes it was exhausting. It was exhausting in two ways. First, because the pushback when you're trying to do something, I mean, I, I need to contextualize this a little bit for the listeners. Um, what I'm talking about now is a period in the late 70s when the civil rights movement had been 
really strong for 10 years when the women's movement, women's liberation movement, we called it, liberating women from stereotypes that were just damned ridiculous, but had confined women and were still confining women. Peace movement, very, very strong anti-nuclear movement, environmental movement, and so on. So in the late 70s, you could have that kind of discussion within a politicized context that does not exist now. And so the leadership required two things. One was to deal with the fierce pushback, which eventually evolved into Thatcherism, which was a crushing pushback. And the other thing was a kind of indifference from people who preferred the status quo for reasons. Uh, there, There was a funny kind of third pushback in as much as one of the wonderful things about the women's movement was that we were saying to women, have some opinions, form some opinions, be free to change your mind, be free to look around and find the big picture. But of course, practically every feminist in London, it seemed, or in the UK more generally, or, you know, in the in all the places we were selling books, had opinions about how a feminist press or a women's press should be run. And so there was a, a lot of discussion and so on about that too. And that probably was the most stimulating part, whereas some of the other pushback was sometimes pretty crippling. So Stephanie, there's so much in what you said there. So there's a couple of things I'd like to explore uh, where you said women are supposed to be clever, but not ambitious, which I think quite interesting. I'd know what you mean by that and also do you think that's changed if we look at today look Kate I think it's changed I think it has definitely changed but women's ambition is still extremely curtailed so that would take us to questions of leadership so What kind of leader do you want to be? What kind of values do you want to express? How disruptive are your values? How questioning are your values? Do you bring a class analysis to what you're doing? Is your feminism largely self-serving? Does your feminism largely serve a, you know, for lack of a better word, a capitalist system that leaves so many people out? You know, these are questions that we we can't avoid. So you could, for example, nowadays be, I want to use the word clever in a very, again, you know, qualified kind of way, because we so admire limited forms of cleverness. But, you know, what am I, what am I bringing that education to? What am I bringing that ambition to? So is it simply to have a role in an exploitative industry? Is it to prop up politics that harm? Uh, we have to we have to really unpick immediately what the context is here. So I guess my ambition all those years ago in publishing was to be able to publish books that I felt mattered. And I, and I still think that is extremely honorable. 
you know, had I used my ambition to publish books that uh, denigrated women or or denigrated people on the basis of color or denigrated people on the basis of their culture or religion. And, and I, I want to point out to your listeners also that I'm, as well as being a writer, I'm an interfaith minister. You know, so questions of, of religious bigotry and so on have preoccupied me a great deal. So how inclusive is the vision that we have of where our leadership is taking us and others. And I also want to say something else about leadership right here and now, which I hope will interest you or your listeners a little bit, is that we need to radically democratize the very notion of leadership, that we're not leaving it to a privileged few or a more ambitious, in inverted commas, few or a luckier few who have opportunities, because so much of it is luck, timing, opportunity. You know, it's just, it staggers me um, how grateful I need to be that I've had opportunities. But we also need to ask ourselves quietly, what are we using that opportunity for? So to me, listening to you, it seems that you place leadership, if you like, in a crucible of, and I'm, I'm going to refer to a phrase you used earlier, doing work that has value. Yes. Is that a, a fair assessment? Yes, absolutely. That we bring values to the leadership, but we also need to ask, what is it taking us from and what is it taking us towards? And Stephanie, do you think women are any better than asking that question than men? I think it dep- I think we can't generalize just on the basis of gender here, Kate. Long ago, when I started the Women's Press, we made a lot of assumptions about what women could do and what men were less likely to do. And all of those assumptions, I think, have been fairly resoundedly trashed. Mm. I don't think it's a question of gender only. I think it's a question of consciousness. What are we conscious of? So we see all around us to a most exhausting extent, women with privilege and opportunity who are making decisions that are no different in any way, not in the way that they represent values, not in the way that they are inclusive, not in the way that they are visionary or inspiring from male colleagues. We also see men who are more than capable of making decisions that have true value, that bring benefit widely, not just to themselves or to their vested interests or to their support group, but to our society more generally. And I think this is the great teaching of this time. And maybe it's been particularly enhanced by the COVID experience that we can't any, any longer delude ourselves that we can benefit some tiny group uh, at the cost of another. However, we still see it in leadership, both in, in inverted commas, both from women and from men. So I would just say one more thing, which is that it's my absolute belief or my experience that you cannot be a women-identified or feminist leader while also having conservative politics. It's just not possible because conservatism itself holds the status quo and feminism should be, K, 
can be, wonderfully be, as with race politics, as with class politics, as with peace politics, disruptive. And, and I agree, which is that leadership should not be gendered, you know, that men are capable of being kind and caring leaders and, and women are capable of being um, autocratic leaders. So leadership should not be gendered, but the experience of leadership is gendered. And I want to come back to one thing you said when you talked about leadership uh, when you were at the Women's Press. You said you were bold and stubborn, but it was costly at a personal level. And you mentioned how exhausted you were. And that made me think when you said it of the concept of the female load, you know, the fact that because women uh, generally take on such a large part of the caring duties in the private sphere, that it becomes very costly for them on a personal level to also have leadership in the public sphere. What's your experience of that? And again, do you think that has changed for the better? Kate, I don't think it's changed much for the better. When you step away from how people assume things ought to be, the natural order of things, which is that men would take leadership and women would follow, that has been the the so-called natural order of things with some amazing exceptions throughout history. So when a woman steps forward and says, I want to do something differently from how it's normally considered to be, Uh, there will be pushback, there will be denigration, there will be trivialization. Why are we constantly hearing we need more women in politics rather than we need more women in politics who have a bigger analysis of what our global world needs as well as what our communities need and so on. And we do have such leaders in Australia. We have some outstanding women leaders in Australia who have that picture, but none of them would be identified with conservatism or regressive politics of any kind. You know, so I could name people like Sally McManus or Michelle O'Neill or um, Malandiri McCarthy or Pat Turner from the, from Nachos, uh, who you know, outstanding women leaders, Cassandra Goldie. These are all women, Indigenous and non-Indigenous, who hold a bigger picture, who whose whose experience as women, as as women who've been marginalised, who've who've firsthand witnessed the suffering of others, can bring that into their leadership. And and that's how I would regard my leadership now, also in terms of my my writing, my public persona, my persistence in writing for the media, and and in in terms of spiritual leadership, which in my case is very social justice-based. You talk there, and you do have several strands to your life. So I said, you know, I started off this conversation talking about you as a businesswoman, you know, the MD of Women's Press, um, a writer, and you're also an interfaith minister. How do all these streams of your life connect? Well, they are, they're one, Kate. They are one. My writing has been a real gift to me in the sense that it's allowed me to ask questions at depth for the whole of my adult life. And um, especially the second half of my adult life. So in the in the first part of my professional life as a publisher, I was asking questions that I was then encouraging writers to commit to and develop. 
and I was asking questions inspired by writing and writers. And in the second half of my actual life, but a longer period of my professional life, I've been asking questions mainly in terms of my writing, but also I've done lots of, you know, broadcasting and media and so on. And my ministry is part of that. I see spiritual development as indistinguishable from social justice, advocacy and questioning. And I also see social justice, advocacy and questioning and activism as indistinguishable from our spiritual maturity. I mean, we have a very basic purpose in life, I think, which is somehow to find the goodness, find the strengths in ourselves. And and that's, again, what I would like to say about democratizing leadership. We have these strengths within ourselves. We might express them differently. Some of us express them beautifully, exquisitely, quietly in our community, in our families. But we bring the leadership of kindness. We bring the leadership of consideration. We bring the leadership of pausing to listen to another human being. It, it's all one. You know, it's interesting listening to you about how we conceive of leadership. You know, I think we think of leadership quite narrowly. You know, we think of political leaders or corporate leaders. One of the best things for me about doing this series with Women's Agenda is talking to a whole different range of women who are leading in different ways. You know, that point that you made about leaders in your community. How can we value that more, do you think, that type of leadership? I think by becoming conscious of it, conscious of its value. So, for example, um, in, in all my books, I'm wanting to wake people up to the power that they have simply to bring a greater empathy, a greater compassion, a greater interest to other people and to witness the reward you see immediately on another person's face and also to witness the, the, the distress that we can sometimes cause others, read their face, read their face, probably more important than reading a book, but understanding what you're seeing and adjusting accordingly. I do want to ask you a few questions about your book, Intimacy and Solitude. I mean, I know this is a book that you've just recently republished. You subtitle it, Finding Closeness and Self-Trust in a Distanced World. What do you mean by distant world? And what do you see as the problems that come from living in a distanced world? Well, I wrote a really long new introduction to this book because I realized that so much of it um, was about our difficulties around closeness and our difficulties about being with our own selves. You know, those are two fundamental challenges in everybody's life, no matter where we live no matter what our cultures are. They, those difficulties and the rewards of closeness, of intimacy and of solitude, uh, transcend all other differences between us. But I felt that this, these difficulties and challenges and rewards have been absolutely highlighted in this COVID time. So the distanced world has brought distanced world, we've been required to socially distance. At the same time, we have been more than ever dependent upon each of us thinking about the well-being of the other. You know, the, the whole mask situation or caring for the health and well-being of others has been so pointed in this time of, of COVID that are we prepared to 
you know, make a, the most minute adjustment to our usual habits. So the distanced is quite a complex idea because actually many of us have also discovered we are quite painfully distanced from ourselves so that what do we return to in a time of struggle? What do we what do we return to? I mean, many people are living with profound uncertainty, financial uncertainty, housing insecurity, food insecurity, as well as health insecurity. We, we can never forget that. You know, we talk a lot about, oh, people are moving to, you know, do their work in their homes. Well, many people are not, partly because they're frontline workers or partly because they have no work. And in that time, how do we find a closeness to our own inner resources, which is very much the theme of the book. How do we regain a closeness to our inner resources? And how do we also maintain a sense of support of one another, even when we can't be physically present? But the other great thing, of course, of, from this time is that we, we can no longer pretend that we are independent of each other or independent of the planet on which we totally depend. We are not. We are part of nature. We are part of the planet. You know, we, we care, when we care for ourselves, we must care for the planet. And when we care for the planet, we must care for ourselves. So this notion of interdependence really goes to the heart of how we are meeting the challenges of this time. And it also goes to the heart of what we could call women's leadership or feminist leadership or conscious leadership or leadership with integrity, that we must take in a bigger vision than our own self-promotion. I want to um, just talk about solitude and intimacy, just partly so I, so I can give the, the audience some insights that you that I, I gained from reading the book, actually. So you talk about solitude and how do you know yourself? And, and when I was reading it, I was thinking, well, it should be natural to know yourself, but in the end, actually quite problematic. What, but for people that are listening who, who are grappling with this, what stops us from knowing ourselves and what can we do about it? Well, actually... I wrote the original edition of Intimacy and Solitude over six years. And uh, while I was doing lots of freelance, lots and lots of freelance work to make my living and um, lots and lots of care of my tiny children who were born one year apart, so I need say no more. And also being new in Australia, and, and, and that was hard. So a, a great proportion of that was given to the section on the self because we so easily fall back on questions of identity. So, you know, we could say, Kate, tell, tell me three things about yourself. Uh, I'm uh, Scottish, I'm married, and I have two children. Yes. Well, you haven't given me a, a professional identity, so throw, so throw something else in. Uh, I'm the chief executive of a, a charity. Okay. The identity questions are what we grow up with, um, and we... We accord identity a great deal of status that may have much to do or little to do with who we genuinely feel we are inside. And I think I was quite typical of many, many women and probably of many men too, in as much as my identity, I, my sense of self was 
deeply confused with my identity. And so was my self-worth. I felt deeply that my self-worth was tied to my achievements. And I say this with such deep feeling because during my many years of, you know, giving workshops, which I've continued to do, and my many years of working as a psychotherapist and so on, I can tell you that it is quite heartbreaking how much sacrifice many women, as well as many men, but women in a very particularly poignant and painful and sometimes self-judging way, pour into identity questions while neglecting the, the deeper, more trustworthy feelings of self. In other words, take those identities away. Well, we would never take away uh, the identity that we are a mother or a sister or a daughter or a friend. That's part of self. But some of the other things, you know, I'm, I'm young, I'm old, or I'm very successful, or I've never succeeded in anything. I have lots of talents. I have no talents. I'm awfully rich. I have, I am not rich. I have a Mercedes Benz. I've never had a car. All those sorts of things don't go to this question of self. And I think at a certain point in many people's emotional evolution, they have achieved or, 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 or not achieved many of the things that the world has told them are tremendously important and still feel quite depressed or a bit dissociated from the, the identities, or they might feel... Imposter syndrome, I think lots of women talk about that. You know, I got here, but do I really deserve to be here? And there is a quieter place within yourself which really teaches you and tells you that your life is of value. And sometimes it takes a crisis to discover that. And let's assume that that crisis has within it the tremendous potential to take some of the power that we give away to others to determine who and what we are and bring it back into ourselves. So I could say to you and to everybody who's listening, without hesitation, your life has value. And the value of your life is not dependent upon worldly achievements. When you recognize that your own life has values and that you have what we could call universal or soul strengths. That is, you have the power and the choice to bring greater well-being to others, as simple as that. So however humble your life is, according to the world standards, you have opportunities every single day to make this world in some slight way a slightly better place, and therefore your own world also. I want to just talk, move to intimacy now. So if you think about solitude as knowing yourself and intimacy as knowing others, it's the same question in a way. Can we learn to be more intimate, you know, to, to get to know others better? Oh, yes, Kate. We can learn to be with others. So there is a real logic to this. 
when we can be with ourselves, when we're perhaps less needy, less demanding, and also when we know ourselves better, when we recognize what we're projecting onto others. So the, the, the big example, of course, is that in romantic love, we often project onto others a kind of idealization that that poor person can't live up to, but we're also projecting onto them a vision of ourselves that we're very happy to see reflected back. And then, of course, our complexity erupts and we have to get to know a person who can have many contradictory uh, impulses and ideas at the same time. In other words, if we make greater peace with ourselves and if we retain a real curiosity about what's going on and why something went well and why something went a little bit more less well, without being at all self-obsessed, but just really interested, then we can also bring that kind of open-mindedness to our connections with other people. Stephanie, it's been really delightful and really interesting to talk to you for this podcast. It leaves me feeling like we need to spend more time thinking as individuals and how you are, as you mentioned earlier, um, really more of a philosopher. Well, thank you, Kate. I really appreciate Women's Agenda and I really have appreciated being with you today. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoyed this episode, which was produced by Lisa Gebelagin. If you enjoyed what you heard, then make sure you subscribe and leave us a rating. For more from Women's Agenda, visit womensagenda.com.au and I look forward to hosting you at the next episode. Women's Agenda is proud to partner with Salesforce on this podcast series. As the world's leading CRM, Salesforce continues to be a different kind of Fortune 500 company, one that cares and gives back to the community, yet innovates like a startup. Equality is a core value at Salesforce and as a business, believes that its higher purpose is to drive equality for all. For more, visit salesforce.com.